Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean and this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a paper titled Review of the Foundational Knowledge Required for Assessing Horse Welfare. This is by Andrea M. Harvey, Daniel Ramp and David J. Meller. So the key starting points for assessing horse welfare are are a detailed understanding of what is usual for horses under the most optimal conditions. And then knowledge about conditions that may impact welfare needs to be tied in with this. So this review presents the foundational knowledge required for undertaking comprehensive assessments of horse welfare, organized according to a novel holistic framework. So the framework that they've used in this paper is the five domains model. And that's what you're going to hear me and Nancy discussing in a minute. So this is a resource specifically tailored to assist those that are wishing to assess the welfare of horses in free roaming or in domestic situations. So in the five domain model, there are domains, in this paper, domains one to four are discussed. So the fifth domain looks at the mentation of the horse or the mental state, and there is more, research being done specifically into domain five. So for the purpose of this paper, we'll discuss one to four. And these address areas where objective information is evaluated and collated. So measurable information, we can actually get numbers back from objective information. So the first domain is nutrition. The second is physical environment. The third is health. And the fourth is behavioral interactions. And this was a really interesting, really in-depth review. It's quite a large paper. Um, I believe it's open access, Nancy. Isn't that right? Yes, it is open access. And it's a 2022 publication. So it's recent research as well. Really goes into depth in each domain and what they're the species specific information is required. So for example, under nutrition, there's multiple headings because they look at water requirements. Under that, they look at volume, frequency, preferred sources, factors affecting it, how horses adapt to impacts of water restriction. They look at nutritional requirements and preferences. They look at common uh, deficiencies, common excesses, their causes, plant toxicities. They look at body condition, body condition scoring systems, optimal body condition scores, and factors affecting body condition. So for just one domain, that's a huge amount of detail that's gone into it, which is what makes using these five domains really useful in assessing welfare, because I think it's the next step forward in being really stringent and really in-depth and moving away from is are they getting enough like is it just enough that they're not tipping on there being a welfare problem 
but they're not thriving um, versus using something like this, we can really hone in and say, like, are they thriving when we look at these different domains and how specific they can be? So I thought this was a great read, Nancy. And some of the things that came up, like under even the no nutrition domain, were really fascinating, like especially when they compare with the free roaming horses. And obviously they have different requirements and different access when it comes to nutrition and water. Yeah, I enjoyed this paper. I was trying to find something that could follow up the one we did previous or last week, which was how happy are equine athletes. And if you know, you're an owner of a horse, how you could assess the welfare of your horse. So this is the foundation right here. And I thought it was really useful because they're using the wild horse uh, behavior to assess good or bad welfare. So um, I thought the nutrition was really good because it had a lot of updated information. And I was surprised that under that nutrition, the water requirements of wild horses, I think is a lot less than what our domestic horses could tolerate. So, um, and I think it was interesting that um, domestic horses tend to get more gastric ulcerations than their wild counterpart, which um, they attributed to water intake. But I also think it could be forage intake. We tend to give a drier hay than what the plants are that these wild horses may be eating. Now, I know there's a lot of browse out there that's dry as well, but some of these horses they're days away from water and yeah. they survive. And I think they said that uh, it was like 15% uh, dehydration is fatal for a horse. And it was estimated that some of these wild horses could go seven days before they hit that. That's amazing because they're having to move to, to make it to these watering. Yeah. And I mean, I have horses um, in the heat, especially, they're drinking huge amounts of water to stay hydrated. So I think that's definitely um, the difference. And we have to remember there is a difference between domestic and wild horses. Yeah, in the paper, they said domestic horses can drink up to eight times per day. And that can just be because of availability, like the water is in front of them. So they go and have a drink of it. It might become habit or behavior. Whereas they did mention um, in the wild, most wild horse populations drink once a day. Uh, they'll still take in, because their requirement should still be 50 mil per kilo per day as a rough requirement. Um, and that's just for an adult horse, not lactating, not pregnant, at rest. They're going to need that. So a 300 kilo horse needs about 15 liters of water per day. And then when they looked at this wild horse population in Australia, they had to travel really large distances and would take one drink every 48 hours. So then I was thinking, like, obviously in these large horses, they can't measure the intake because we don't have a measurement of the, you know, a wild water source as such. 
But some horses were recorded to walk up to 55 kilometers to get to their water source. And 55 kilometers is about 34 miles. So it's a huge distance. And in hotter countries, they're dehydrating as they're walking. So their capacity to adapt, I think, is incredible. And to be able to obviously retain their hydration status under these conditions. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I did look up in this country. We do have a wild populations um, here that you can actually go visit. Assateague is one, and it's between Virginia and Maryland. And they have an, a herd that you can actually go in you have to follow all the rules. You know, you can't feed them. You can't touch them. You just observe them. But you could actually, um, you know, camp and sign up to actually observe this herd. So um, it was kind of interesting that um, they've been around for so long. And they do have, though, where their population is diminishing and, um, you know, sometimes it's due to weather extremes and weather conditions. Our horses, we can learn from that and adapt our management to help them get through this, these extreme weather conditions. And, um, you know, the heat that's going on um, in our country this summer. And Kate, I've, I've heard on the news you're having kind of a heat spell as well and you know our horses um luckily we can help them get through those these wild horses it's the survival of the fittest whether an individual makes it or not and i think age and genetics and well-being before these extreme conditions hit is a factor as well yeah, we've had a bit of a spike in heat just this week for us in ireland so I was saying to Nancy before we started that we're now somewhere between 26, 27 degrees Celsius. And Nancy was saying that they've had a drop in temperature where she is. And we worked out that it's the same temperature in both places. So it's hilarious that this is like this is hot weather for Ireland for it to be up at 27 degrees, especially at this time of year. And um, certainly like we wouldn't be out walking our dogs in the high of the day in this heat. And so it was really interesting to hear that, you know, AC is a nice bit of a cooler day for you guys. Um, and even the adaptation that you have there, you know, and I I mentioned this actually when we were talking about the equine athletes, about transporting them and acclimatizing them. You know, when you're used to competing in different climates and you now need to acclimatize them to a new climate for competition, so their ability to adapt is absolutely incredible. Um, another thing I found really interesting under the first domain for nutrition was when they were talking about the deficiencies. Mm -hmm. They were talking about copper in particular. So copper is essential for normal collagen biosynthesis and skeletal development. And they found that where there was a copper deficiency in the mayor, Foals were born with an increased likeliness of having developmental orthopedic disease, which Nancy and I have done a podcast on in the past on DOD. 
Um, and they also found that in those adult horses with copper deficiency, that was linked more to osteoporosis, joint diffusion, limb deformity, and secondary iron deficiency anemia. So really interesting that we start to see these de developmental diseases linked specifically with that um, copper deficiency. Yeah, and also um, linked with copper is zinc. And some of my hoof care clients, I always encourage them to put their horses on a copper zinc type hoof supplement because that makes a huge difference in the quality of the hoof. And I thought it was kind of unique that not only does copper um, deficiency results in osteosporosis in horses, but in women. And let me tell you, I have never heard that I should be taking copper and zinc supplements for bone health. I always hear it's calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin K. So I had to look into that. And they said, um, women in the elderly, whether man or woman, if you're elderly, it would behoove um, your bone health to take copper and zinc. So mm. something there, I had never heard that before. Interestingly, very recently, I heard um, someone suggesting, it was more in a holistic way. I don't know if they necessarily had evidence behind it, but now it would tie in with what you were saying, Nancy. But they were talking about um, the benefits of having a copper water jug and filling it with your water overnight and covering it. And then in the morning, that's your first drink in the morning to try and increase your copper. It was like a more natural way to do it. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. I have never heard of that before. I'm going to have to look into this because I recently just started um, bone strength uh, weightlifting at our gym. And, you know, they're talking about to you know, not have any bone health issues as you age to do bone density um, testing, but also um, your calcium, vitamin D, vitamin K, you know, take that in. It all works together to help you absorb calcium and then, um, you know, to lift weights, to be able yeah. to in those bones and here I come across this and I thought I wonder if that's true for women so I had a little research um, search at Google Scholar and I'll be darn it said yes so copper zinc coupled with calcium vitamin D vitamin K is something um, that benefits our bone health as well. So there you go. I learned something studying horses yeah. that I'll have to apply for me, you know. I think that's happened to us a couple of times throughout the podcast where we're like, oh, maybe, especially with stretching. I mean, yes. that definitely rang true. I would say with um, taking supplements, I, like we've mentioned this with the episode with Brittany about over-supplementing horses, you can over-supplement yourself as well. So, and I've known somebody close who has over supplemented themselves and it can make you quite sick. So please yeah. do do that with care, like water soluble supplements. If you take those in excess, you excrete them in your urine. But if you take fat soluble supplements in excess, you don't excrete them like they're processed by the liver. Yeah. 
you do eventually excrete them, but not in the same way. So it puts your liver under a lot of strain. Um, The other thing was that protein deficiency. And that can really cause a lot of problems in horses. And, um, you know, we've talked about that where um, seek a nutritionist because they're able to do a ration calculation that can kind of tell you what you're feeding, if that's balanced or not. And then from that point, your veterinarian can help your horse if there are any absorption problems in each life stage it's a little bit different requirement. So um, anyway, I thought this was perfect paper. If you have a sport horse uh, for welfare, um, you can look at the nutritional aspects of the number one domain and see, compare it. Is your horse stressed where they're not absorbing as much um, of their nutrition as they should be? Uh, Also um, ulcers can create issues. And then um, the second domain was their physical environment. Are you providing um, that environment that a horse can thrive in? And, you know, usually number one, they need good sleep. Are you making sure that they're able to um, rest and have a good rest? And uh, sometimes if they're arthritic or in pain, they won't lay down to get that REM sleep. And we have an episode on that as well. That so- episode, I remember doing that paper and it still stands out to me so much because every stable I walk into now, I really take note of how thick the padding is, how thick the bedding yeah. is. Particularly in equine hospital environments, you need the horses to be comfortable to lay down in that. Like it has to be of a certain quality and meet certain standards. Or as Nancy said, they're not going to have that REM sleep. And if they don't have REM sleep, they can't heal adequately. So it's such a simple step, you know, getting your stable layout comfortable and getting it correct to be able to make sure that they're able to regenerate and heal. And I was just going to call out for that physical environment domain, Uh, Some of the topics it covered were habitat preferences, factors affecting habitat selection and use, preferred underfoot substrate and terrain, thermoneutral zone, impacts of extreme climate events and signs of thermal discomfort. Just so um, you guys know, because me and Nancy are just going to touch on, you know, the things that kind of stood out to us the most, but this is open access. So you can read on each one of these. Yeah, and my my favorite part of this paper was the thermoneutral zone because, you know, 10 years ago, they would tell us every horse, the thermoneutral zone was 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, you know, now this paper um, has a range and that it's individual for each horse. So um, I think in today's uh, research, it's five to 25 degrees uh, Celsius, which would be 41 degrees Fahrenheit to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So the lower at 41, if it are uh, five Celsius, if it goes below that, they're burning calories to stay Mm -hmm. uh, warm. 
uh, it's 77 degrees Fahrenheit or 25 degrees Celsius, then they're burning calories to stay cool. So um, if you have a thin horse and it starts to get below that 41 degrees Fahrenheit, then you want to take action and you want to up that the calories a little bit. Or if you're trying to gain weight during the winter months, it's really, really difficult to do that. So um, they did give us an equation, which you know how I am with equations. So um, if it is um, uh, young horses kept at minus five degrees or Celsius, sorry, had 29% lower average daily weight gain than those kept at 10 degrees Celsius. So I looked up what minus five degrees Celsius is, and that's 23 degrees Fahrenheit. So 10 degrees Celsius was 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can kind of know that it temperatures below that lower uh, critical temperature. Uh, to do a maintenance intake of energy, you increase the feed by 2.5% per each decrease in Celsius. So um, in adult horses, you can increase it by 1.3%. In senior horses, you can increase it 2.5 to 3%. So you can kind of know that you're in an uphill battle going into winter if your horse is too thin. So um, you need the blanket, you need Mm -hmm. to increase their calories. And um, also I will point out that horses can also lose weight in the summer heat. And the worst thing you can do is feed more hay because the hay will actually heat them up more and cause them to burn more calories to cool themselves. So what you can do and what I did for my older horse this summer is give her a plant-based oil, um, a omega-3, omega-6 balanced oil that is for um, hot temperatures. So it doesn't heat the horse up further than what they already are. Yeah, that's great as well to have that guideline of how much to feed by the yeah. degree changes, it's it's just so handy and so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like just clear, clear advice on what to do if you've got that skinnier horse. Um, as well with aging horses, like we were talking about, that just sometimes, it kind of springs up on you. Like I remember someone telling me that before saying like, you know, you'll have an older mayor or gelding I have an older mayor and they're like, they, they'll be in great condition, great condition. And you'll go through a winter and you'll come into the spring and suddenly they've lost and it'll surprise you the first time it happens. And then after that, you do just have to put in that work to keep them conditioned to get through the next winter. And Nancy, you were saying before we started that you've had similar experience as well with that. So it's great to have this guideline now where you can think, okay, I need to implement that because, you know, especially if your horse has turned out and in certain climates, you're probably rugging anyway, like we would with a geriatric horse that would be turned out in our climate. And so what can you add in? How can you increase the food? Plant 
the plant-based oils you were talking about sound really interesting that's not something i would have a lot of um experience with including in the diet i had to do a little research on it because um i realized that you know i think one day we had an heat index of 117 and that you know on a, a horse soon to be 27 that's rough on them and mm-hmm. so you keep them cool by cold water hosing and um you know you want to put them in the shade under fans or in their stall under fans but you know they need forage to keep going through as well and um i will say kate told me um she goes don't you have horse nuts that you (laughs) and i was like no we don't feed our horses nuts over here and she told me that just means complete diet um, in Ireland, it's got forage and everything in the pellet or whatever. And I, I need did... to look up and see if that slang is used anywhere else. We've always called them horse nuts or pony nuts. Well, I was like, if anybody's getting almonds in this household, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a very expensive diet. Yep. But, um, you know, they had talked about mega calories in this. So um, horses in poor body condition need significant additional feed to gain weight in colder temperatures. So at minus 10 degrees um, Celsius, that's only 14 degrees Fahrenheit, a 1,000 pound or 500 kilogram horse needs 16.4 mega calories a day digestible energy now they say that equates to nine kilograms of hay now one kilogram is 2.2 pounds so you're talking what kate 22 pounds maybe of hay so um a mega calorie is one million calories so that's how much heat that you're putting in to try and get that poor body condition, which they're saying that would probably be less than four on the uh, body condition score of nine, one to nine. So Mm -hmm. um, that's how much you're behind the eight ball going into winter with a thin horse. So um, another thing I would say is that you probably, you know, like me, I blanket the older horses, and I tell you what, it's important to pull that blanket off, especially if they're pasture horses, and look at their body condition. Yeah, check them. Because sometimes, since you know, you take that blanket off when things start to kind of heat up in like February or March where I live, and you don't want to be shocked at weight loss that has occurred through the winter so I always take it off anyway daily and kind of groom them and get the the um, hair you know the yeah because you can end up with some kind of yeasty or fungal skin problems as well if you're not doing that and I think we'd probably be surprised as to how often um horses that are out to pasture that are rugged how often it is checked or changed or you know, that process. Um, And again, like lots of horses, I'm sure adapt and do absolutely fine. But just as they get that bit older, they're going to be more prone to sensitive skin, weakened immune systems, 
they're going to need that extra bit of support and checking them for that weight loss at the same time. Yeah, I had my first experience with it with the senior horse um, last winter. And I'm trying to get ahead of it this year because at 27, she just doesn't keep the weight on like she used to. And so I've had to make some changes and do some uh, calculating and then also um, do kind of the fecal egg counts and using you know, preventative as far as the parasites go. And uh, this article covers it all. So it's, I thought it was really good general uh, free access information for people um, that can get a good baseline for a foundation of being uh, good at assessing uh, good welfare and bad welfare. Yeah, I think this has been a really in-depth read A lot of this touches on our episode that we did on Friends, Forage and Freedom, um, which was just a brilliant one to listen to if you haven't yet. Like it really does hit the nail on the head when we're looking at welfare. Um, I guess the only thing I had under the health domain that I wanted to point out was that in free roaming horses in a Polish sanctuary, the most common health problems noted over a 70-year period of monitoring were hoof pathology and parasitic diseases. So problems with the hooves and parasites. And they did say, however, resultant lameness or clinical signs associated with parasitism were rare. So there might have been um, damage to the hooves or some malformation of the hooves but resultant lameness was low, which I just thought that was really fascinating in these wild horses. Um, And then they learned to live with the parasites is the other thing. So clinical signs of parasitism were rare because their immune system, I suppose, builds up and they're able to deal with them. Um, Undernutrition was also rare in the population because the small population was maintained at a stable number. And they were able to get supplementary feeding in this free roaming group. But they do manage their numbers. So that's the last one was behaviors. And um, in the wild, if the group gets too large, they will split off into smaller groups to be able to deal with um, dwindling resources. Yeah, I thought that was interesting how they're able to manage their own stocking density. You know, and they do it so well by being able to split the herd and move on. Yeah, it seemed very amicable the way it was written. (laughs) It was, and there's very few uh, fights. Um, Yeah. Mainly among stallions and not among mares. How often we say the mares fight, but they really don't in the wild. And um, also the hoof um, pathology kind of stuck out at me. And um, it was, um, there was really um, no preferred substrate, whether they were on grassland or rock, they still were able to go ahead and navigate it. And, um, you know, as long as there was forage available, but the ligament and tendon injuries in the wild horses were normally from rocky substrates climbing rocks and things like that so you know not a whole lot different than our domestic breeds 
Yeah, that's what I thought kind of rang true. You know, if we get the basics right, then it's it's the foundation, you know, especially when they were looking at this in the wild populations. Yeah, yeah, I really um, thought it was neat. Now, if you want to do another episode, Kate, on health and behavior, I mean, I'm I'm fine with that, you know, but um, I didn't. I think know- we've covered it in other episodes as well. I mean, there's the thing is, like, there's so much in this paper that, as we've mentioned, Nancy and I have just picked out kind of our top bits that stood out to us based on, you know, other papers we've read, having covered other sections. Um, but I mean, you know, this can be one episode. It could easily end up being three episodes too. So I think if we have it kind of covered as one today, but I really advise anyone to go and have a read of this paper because you can dip into any of the domains that strike your fancy as it is and read up on, you know, the social structures or the um, nutrition deficiencies, the sickness behaviors. Like there's so much that's covered in this and it's just an easy read and really fascinating statistics throughout. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really good. And I was impressed that a lot of the research quoted is up to date. And, um, you know, it kind of gives us a guideline for um, how to assess our own horse management. Yeah, and so, so in depth, like, even if all you do is click in and read what the five domains cover, it's something to have in the back of your mind. And we're constantly just trying to push that level for welfare that bit higher each time. So I really enjoyed reading through this. And I think that I think that kind of sums it up actually. And we will be back soon with some more research. So as Nancy said, keep your suggestions coming. We always appreciate them. And we'll talk to you all soon. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Take care, Nancy. Bye bye. <laughs>